This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Uh, so people interpret this a lot of ways, but the very beginning is Arthustra, where the jester leaps over the tightrope walker. I sort of interpret the jester as Nietzsche. Good. Uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> okay. 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 Cool. Interesting. Um, yeah, that he's he's trying to make the leap over mankind, um, but it's I, interesting that he <laughs> it leads to the death of uh, the the tightrope walker. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think uh, at the end of the book, he's like enough of my pity for the higher man, as though his critique of pity applies to everything he does. And, you know, like, he's just being a, a, I don't know, a fucker. Yeah, well, he, um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, too, because that whole scene at the beginning in the prologue, if you were to shoot that as a movie, that should be, like, almost, like, a goofball comedy. Yes! It's hilarious, what yes. The, the chain of events. <laughs> and, and Zarathustra, the fact that he tells this guy, I'm going to bear... I'll haul this. I'm gonna bury you with my own two hands, and then he hauls his corpse around for a long time, and then just leaves him in a tree. He like it's almost like he forgot what he was doing. He's like, um, I don't have time to bury you. I'll just kind of hang you up in a tree for the you know the crows to eat. I guess um, it's a real dick move. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't endear you to Zarathustra, <laughs> but um, yeah. Uh, let me get the. Uh quote from um from, from eke homo yeah i have it in my notes here we go i was trying to be prepared and now i'm being uh palpably clumsy here here here's a thing okay so i, I kind of wanted to get into the discussion with a couple uh quotes from him anyway so uh this is from eke homo why i am so clever god is a too palpably clumsy solution of things a solution which shows a lack of delicacy towards us thinkers at bottom, he is really no more than a coarse and rude prohibition of us. Ye shall not think. I am much more interested in another question, a question upon which the salvation of humanity, in scare quotes, depends to a far greater degree than it does upon any piece of theological curiosity. I refer to nutrition. For ordinary purposes, it may be formulated as follows. Um, anyway, so yeah so he, he gets into this very um oh oh sorry i'll give the quote i didn't give it how how precisely must thou feed thyself in order to attain thy maximum power or virtue in the renaissance style of free of virtue free from moralic acid question mark so virtue there is in the latin version so he's referring to machiavelli's notion of virtue Right, V V I R T U, right? Yeah, Vertu. Vertu. Yeah, if we wanted to be a modern Italian about it. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, later, uh, this is related. Um, I guess, uh, what should we clarify? Well, <laughs> Sorry, go well, on. Well, the first thing about the, the, that passage in Nikahomo, that's interesting because you could translate that a lot of, lot of ways. Um, and I've heard it translated as that God is an indelicacy. Yeah. a gross a gross answer and that there's kind of like because you know he talks about diet there's sort of a food metaphor throughout that passage that god is an indelicacy it's a it's a it's a concept that doesn't suit our taste 
there's sort of like a double entendre there. Um, and, but then he proceed like there's this theme throughout Ekehomo that I haven't really talked about yet, maybe except in passing that I think is really brilliant. And that it's basically Nietzsche in that passage that you just brought up, he's treating ideas in a hygienic sort of way, right? Or in a, yeah. um, in a, in a dietary way, he's talking about your intellectual health, but you know, when you say intellectual health, that's kind of like, could be a nebulous phrase. He means it really literally like you are what you eat. <laughs> you are all these ideas you take in and that he, but the emphasis throughout Ikahomo is this idea. It's the little things that really matter. It's your daily habits that matter. It's your diet that matters. And so it's sort of like all these little ideas that you, and, and so God, why is God a gross answer? Why is it an indelicacy? It's like, it's, it's this big grandiose thing. It's like, you know, a big five course meal of an idea um, that he doesn't have the appetite for. I don't know. I don't know if we're yeah, getting, yeah. I don't know if I'm still like to, <laughs> teasing anything out through the food metaphors, but I think oh, you th- are, th- yeah. th- those, those are throughout the whole book. Um, so I've, I really love that aspect of that book, um, that it's the little things that count. So uh, you did say something. I'm going to jump on it. You said we are our ideas. Well, you better not disagree with me then because you are what you eat. (laughs) Well, no, if I am my ideas, like this is the funny thing. If you disagree with someone, you're like disagreeing with who they are because Mm -hmm. they are their ideas. And I actually think that we can't get away from this, that this is like, it's just human nature. Like if you disagree, it will necessarily, anyway, that's a funny little. Well, it is kind of in the same way that I don't know. Um, Yeah. If you, if you look at ideas as something that you build up or that you like take in just through your daily, um, you know, if somebody like is reading books on Marxism all the time and all they watch is videos by Marxist Twitch streamers. And that's all they think about all the time that becomes your identity, but it does happen through like, it's your identity because that's what you're thinking about every day. Right. And that's like what you're taking in every day. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting, it's an interesting insight into how people's intellectual life actually works that we tend to, I think, it's really easy to like, I don't know, what would you say? Look at somebody's book, somebody like Nietzsche, especially and like you look at a book that has a lot of big ideas in it and you assume like these ideas dawned on him and Nietzsche even kind of creates a mythology around like, Oh, eternal return dawned on me when I was walking around in 1881 and I saw this pyramid shaped rock. But really in Ikehomo, what's interesting to me is how he just talks about how, I don't know. He emphasizes it's like it's your daily, what you do daily that really matters in shaping who you are. It's not these big ideas and they don't just come like from the heavens or whatever. Um, yeah. But it is your ideas. It's like it's like with the ideas that are just in the air you breathe like all the time. Um, this is why he was so suspicious of any idea that did not come to him while walking. I mean, he says this. He, he yeah. says you should be suspicious <laughs> of anything which comes from when you're sitting. Well, it made me, when I was reading that passage, it made me like think, well, shouldn't I be suspicious of you? You're a very sick person, Nietzsche, you know? <laughs> like, and I mean, and that gets at the whole, is he a clown? And I think he's aware of his own silliness. And I think we should be silly. Um, and I'd also, you brought up the eternal return. Um, and I, I, this is also something I wanted to read. 
Uh, it's the opening of Ecclesiastes. Uh, can I go for it? Yeah. Okay. Do it. <clears throat> this is King Solomon. And I interpret it that he's being uh, tormented by the noonday demon, uh, Acedia. It, or is that how you say it? Acedia in this passage? Anyway, uh, I'll start it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So I think here, this he's describing the eternal return. I don't know. I think he is. <laughs> Um, I think it, I you could definitely interpret it. It's a ver so eternal return, as I talked about. I think the episode, yeah, the episode came out today. Um, um, there's variations on eternal return throughout all sorts of religions, right? And so one of the versions is like the Pyth Pythagoreans, Pythagoreans. I don't know how you pronounce yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that they believe that everything sort of repeats within recorded history. And it, that's kind of the flavor I get from the Ecclesiastes passage that basically the gist of it, and I mean, that's the, that's a really famous, I mean, we get that the idiom, nothing new under the sun from that yeah, passage. Yeah. Um, but it's basically an anti, it's, uh, it's a very historic, I think it's like a historical eternal return, which I think Nietzsche does mean by eternal return. There's a lot of layers to it, right? But the historical version is sort of the cyclical view that within this world there is no progress or there's no we're not getting to anything um which i think is that makes sense to me um to some extent um in christianity now once you get into the the thing is that throughout christianity sees the world as this sort of um, moral battleground and there is an unfolding series of like dispensations and God makes covenants and there's different phases and there's eventually there is like a spiritual progress going on right where this doesn't really apply to the the true world the spiritual world there is actually something new under the sun that's going to happen so when at various points they they thought about taking Ecclesiastes or at least the rabbinic tradition did of taking Ecclesiastes out, like, because this is a profane notion, right? Like. Interesting. Yeah. So because, well, I guess, yeah, because especially in the, in the Jewish account, there very much is like a historical progress, right? That's sort of like foreordained. I, I'm like, not going to make any claims about the broader. I just know that little tidbit. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I don't know anything more beyond that, but um, I guess I wanted to propose that 
one way to look at Nietzsche is to say, oh, Nietzsche has looked the noonday demon in the face and said, no, <laughs> he said everything should be playful under the sun. So like later in Ecclesiastes, uh, King Solomon kind of says, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And I think um, Nietzsche kind of says, eat, drink and be merry. And it just leaves the ending part off. <laughs> right. and, and and that goes to his passage about Amor Fati, um, uh in is it gay science when he says uh help me help me help me let, uh, amor fati the let that be my love henceforth i do not want to accuse yes yes I yes do not uh, even want to accuse the accusers i'll just look away from the bad right yeah let uh yeah. yes let that be my only uh negation we'll be looking away which is kind of yeah. like where zarathustra says where one cannot love one should pass by yeah yeah um, yeah um so i get what, what else oh okay so why did i bring up earlier uh virtue um and then what is the relationship of virtue to amor fati i actually think that there's a really uh important relationship between the two latin words he loves to use right um and i have a passage from machiavelli um discussing virtue all right this is towards the end. He's, he's repeated this uh, once earlier in a discussion of men of ability. So he's discussing virtue. Quote, it was necessary that the people of Israel should be captive so as to make manifest the ability of Moses, that the Persians should be oppressed by the Medes so as to discover the greatness of the soul of Cyrus, and that the Athenians should be dispersed to illustrate the capabilities of Theseus. Then at the present time, in order to discover the virtue of an Italian spirit, it was necessary that Italy should be reduced to the extremity that she is in now, or extremity, excuse me, that she should be more enslaved than the Hebrews, more oppressed than the Persians, more scattered than the Athenians, without head, without order, beaten, despoiled, torn, overrun, and to have endured every kind of desolation. And at the very end, he includes this uh, poem by Petrarch. Virtue will take up arms against the barbarian and may the struggle be brief for the valor of old is not yet extinguished in Italian hearts. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, hmm. it's interesting because I know we've talked about, or you and I have in the past, um, Peter Turchin's work and the, um, it just, it was interesting hearing, uh, Machiavelli describe the situation of Italy, that that period of Italian history is what um, Turchin called an Asabia black hole. Asabia being that's yeah, yeah. given Caldoun's term for um, a society's capacity to cooperate and bring to bear collective force. And that uh, in the wake of, uh, you know, Rome atrophying and dying, um, you know, when you have when you have an empire decline over that many generations, it leaves such a lasting impact to where Italy was in this, um, you know, all, all these like infighting duchies and um, completely disorganized. And um, like he says, lots of uh, conflict and violence. And so it's I don't know. That was where what that made me think of, but I, ha I haven't read the prince in a long time. Yeah. I yeah. Need to yeah. Read it. Okay. So the, I, I, 
Um, so to to continue my polemic, uh, it's not a polemic, or my argument about uh, the relation, the necessary relationship between um, fate, like amor fati and virtue, is that um, I guess let me get the uh, poetry from. Who is well, it? and and also to jump in, what, what another thing that I, I didn't mention. That's yeah, yeah. I like the way that he says it's basically it's because of these um, uh, these awful states of affairs where whole peoples were thrown into suffering. That was for the sake of bringing forth a few great people. Yeah, <laughs> for a yeah. few great stories. Um, is that well? So that's where you're going with this. That's providential. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. It, so this is from Seneca, uh, the Roman Stoic. It's called On Providence. Uh, he earlier he has this little quip where he says um, when he's talking about lower men he says lower men sad for never going through a sad circumstance and then later mm-hmm. I, I actually I had to retranslate some of the poetry because I didn't like how it was translated so uh, here's a passage nothing looks as miserable as he who never felt sting of adversity he never sees the limits of himself and through the gods and though the gods guide all things in this world, such a man's existence irks their thinking. They see him lacking in merit. Fortune gives cowards a wide berth. And if she actually said, why on earth? Excuse me. Ah, As if she actually said, why on earth? Should I give a meaningful fighting chance to an adver- adversary who yields at once? Hmm. Interesting. So... Well, I mean, there, there's the, the obvious parallel in Nietzsche that, um, you know, to those people who are of any interest to me, which um, great suffering and cataclysms and adversity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I was listening um, to your response to the, um, the q and I, I, I was thinking, oh, yeah, this fits right into his response to that. Yeah. Yeah, and the cure for misery is misery. Is the other yes. Yeah, <laughs> fortune gives cowards a wide berth. Yeah, um, isn't that fun? I love that. Oh, I love that. So yeah, these, pe- these people who say that, uh, um, like sometimes you get these edge lords, and I'm an edge lord. I'm guilty. I'm a clown. Um, so forgive me, clown father. But uh... <laughs> oh, and we should clarify. We were talking, I think, before we started recording that Nietzsche. <laughs> refers to himself as a clown at the end of oh the yeah i should give the passage uh what is it that he's i, I do he's not want to be a pri- I, I do not want to be a priest i would rather be a clown perhaps i am a clown anyway so and, and just like uh jupiter is uh jew means uh sky and potter means father sky father we should call nietzsche a uh, clown father anyway um what was i saying in, in a in a clown world only only the clown is truly sane yeah yeah <laughs> reference that's for <laughs> meme culture <laughs> um, oh. but yeah you were talking about providence and uh, the Seneca Seneca passages in relation to that oh 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 sometimes in the in the community of people who love Nietzsche people like to say Nietzsche hated the Stoics I think that's a little silly. Um, no, yeah, he didn't hate the Stoics. Yeah, there's. I honestly, there's some... I okay. People say this, and they're usually full of shit. Um, but like about themselves, they'll be like, "I don't hate anyone," but I genuinely don't think Nietzsche hated anyone. 
in terms of like thinkers. Um, I just don't get that impression from him. I don't think he was capable of actually feeling like anger at someone else being wrong about something because I, I think he was so convinced that our intellectual productions are just these secondary, like superficial skin and our instincts. And so, yeah, yeah. You know, like, I don't think he was really capable of like hating any of the, but especially the Greeks, like even the most wrong, like sick Greek in Nietzsche's eyes is healthier than like the best modern person. Um, so that's what I would have to say about that. Like, so, so do you think Nietzsche thought we live in the best of all possible worlds? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to say yes to that. Okay. Let but me, I don't want to ask... say no. To, I don't want to say no to it either. Can, can because... I ask another question? Is, is a uh, Pangloss Sisyphus smiling? Um, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sisyphus. Uh, Sisyphus being being uh, who said we should imagine Sisyphus happy? That's Albert Camus, right? Yeah, yeah, it's at the end of it. Yep, that's like the right. last thing he said. We should imagine Sisyphus smiling, and we I should I was, do that. So, <laughs> so in Nietzsche's love of all creation, which is a more fati, um, <laughs> right. making him so Christian, it's so gross, but uh, yeah, but it's the same thing that Leibniz is doing, right? Or that the general or spinoza what is what is you know what spinoza calls amor fati what does he call it amor day oh god love 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 of god oh you're you're hitting me with the great commandments oh but but what did nietzsche say about spinoza i have a precursor and what a precursor um you can also see spinoza's canatus concept in Nietzsche's will to power or in you know the because that goes through Schopenhauer and the idea of willing because you remember Spinoza is also like a mathematician and like a scientist he's got like a whole theories of physics and so um all of that was really formative on will to power and there are a lot of concepts in Spinoza that almost get directly laundered into Nietzsche and it um, it's funny I didn't even when you told me about the topic you want to discuss I didn't even think about Spinoza and the fact that he's got a version of a morphati that's directly references God it's a deistic God but it's God <laughs> and that's basically the difference as Nietzsche says you know we're loving rather than Nietzsche yeah you can say that a morphati is very similar to inshallah only there's no Allah um, yeah yeah so yeah i have a, i would um, i would agree i would but the best of all possible worlds thing i would just say <laughs> i think i think there's something i think the way nietzsche would answer that to be perfectly honest is he would question the idea of possible worlds like what are you even talking about and that's how i think he would get out of that yeah that's because that's because possible worlds is like a very rationalist uh conception of the issue right whereas Nietzsche is not a rationalist like well part of why he would say he loves this world is because he'd be like this is all eternally necessary and so it's not even conceivable that there could be a different world um that's just your yeah yeah you know that's that's your bolt your mind bullshit I guess I don't know so um Hollingdale the translator of Nietzsche thought that um Nietzsche was very influenced by his the Lutheran pietism 
and specifically like uh, here let me get what exactly what hollandale says did you explain what it uh, yeah what is lutheran pietism uh it's a certain pietism is like the last great revival of protestant protestantism um in the modern era I mean, that's what they call it. I, I don't know. I think there have been other revivals. But anyway, so yeah, you're forgetting um, about the Westboro Baptist Church. I mean, yeah, but they're not that big. Anyway, Pietism is <laughs> anyway, they're big I, I'm in not, my heart. I, I, yeah, I, I'm not an expert on this topic. Let me just read Hollingdale. I, I don't want to give my okay, own opinions. Okay. Uh, Anamorphati, Lutheran acceptance of the events of life as divinely willed with the consequent affirmation of life as such as divine as a product of the divine will and the implication that to hate life is blasphemous. Eternal recurrence. As a consequence of amor fati, the extremist formulation of life affirmation, strongly influenced by the Christian concepts of eternal life and the unalterable nature of God, what is, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I, um, that I think those elements, so a big part of my argument for why there are two sides to Nietzsche is that I think he basically, so on the one hand, he has his project in philosophy, right? Where that is all heavily, what would you say? Uh, he calls it, uh, he's negated as no one has ever negated while never ceasing to be a yes sayer. Um, and that, you know, cynicism is how mean souls touch honesty. And, um, you know, his praise for Socrates as the best fencing master of Athens and all this, that, and the other. Or like Hans-Jörg Muller, where he calls it Nietzsche's frolicking science, where, where Hegel was always trying to show how things, uh, you know, all these various contingent things are actually revealing something which is necessary. Um, Nietzsche is always trying to show how the things which we think are necessary are actually contingent in like that's, you know, first chapter of Beyond Good and Evil, I think is the best example of that. But then there's the other side of Nietzsche that's artistic or even religious, where I think he is consciously looking at the things that religion gave us in the way of enchanting the world and saying, I have to figure out how to replicate that. And he can't do that like philosophically because the, how do you do that with from a will to truth, right? It, Nietzsche's will to truth, would he would never embark on that project. So it's an artistic project. But then, yeah, I think he's 100% looking at these elements within Christianity that you just express through pietism that would seem to be like, because you can always find those elements to some extent, right? Um throughout Christianity and in fact, most religions of the world, you can find a lot of the things that Nietzsche is looking for, but then you have some examples where it's like, Oh, wow. They've, they've expressed this. They've expressed these things that have been dialectically swimming around in the faith that it get expressed in all these various ways in a way that totally finds agreement with Nietzsche. And um, given little, you know, Lutheranism in Germany and how popular it is, I, I guess that's, it's kind of apropos that he would find that form that you'd find a form of Lutheranism to reject Lutheranism with, um, you know, <laughs> to secularize the enchantment of the world that Lutheran pietism like gave us. So I completely believe that I think Hollandale is onto something. So do you think, so Nietzsche's project then is to trace the historical ley line 
of the aesthetic beauty and then reinvent it. Yeah. Like he's tapping on all the idols, figuring out. Yeah. Um, it well, just like the so just like with the revaluation of all values morally, um, he's like, okay, I need to build a new morality from the ground up because the old one is has has died. So like that's the thing. People could take issue with a lot of things in Nietzsche, but if you like start from a couple basic assumptions. I think a lot of what he's doing makes sense. And it, it explains why the, like the dumb atheist, new atheist interpretation of Nietzsche is really silly of like, he's, he's, he's dancing on the grave of God or whatever. Um, But also the Jordan Peterson view is not right. It's basically where he's, he, the premises I think you have to accept for it to make sense is okay. The Christian religion is dying and it's not coming back. Those are the two things it's dying. And once it dies, it's not coming back. People could make arguments about those things, but I think if you accept them and then you accept all these other, I guess that maybe the third big one is like religion provides this essential, um, what would you say, necessary fictions for living in the world? Uh, Can I give Um, my exact response to that? Sure. Religion gives us tools to deal with inescapable evils. For example, death, injustice, and determinism. I think that is what religion is. That's how I would define its essence and its uh, its normative value to us. You think you think determinism is a is an evil? That yeah, we have to be inis- like saved from. Yeah, that's why it's an I mean, inescapable evil. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if I, I disagree with Nietzsche here, but when he had his um, when he had his revelation about the eternal return, and he's de- uh, is it Salome who is describing it because. She said he was like horrified. Well, that aspect of horror, you, I mean, you can look away all you want, but in my opinion, that's an inescapable evil. The imp- and it doesn't have to be determinism. Maybe we could call it the impotence of the human will, right? It's actually the theme of Candide when, um, when Voltaire is just assaulting the reader with all of these tragic events, right? Like, yeah, it's the impotence of human will. How could this be the best of all possible worlds, right? Anyway, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. I'm like, I'm thinking about it and I, I get what you're saying. I, hmm. I do think, I think you're correct in the sense that Nietzsche saw what he calls the perception of unfree will or what he calls Mohammedan fatalism, the sense of that you're in chains to like the strand, the strings of fate, right? You're a puppet mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. A, a horrifying feeling. Well, but I do have to distinguish with the Nietzsche being horrified at eternal recurrence. It, he's got two minds about it, I think, with everything because Zarathustra calls it his most abysmal thought. But then also there's, there's a section in Will to Power where Nietzsche is talking about, um, he says it's the highest... Um, expression of the will to power to transform becoming into being and that's basically what he sees like all of our mental productions as doing is that we're living in this in endless dynamic flux this royal of becoming and then we create these things like platonic forms god um, all these categories of being right the buddha the brahman existence um and that these aren't actually real and that beyond our perceptions and what's beyond our comprehension, it's just chaos. 
and that all these aesthetic anthropomorphisms are just are like lies for falsifying the world basically but in that he kind of expresses um what he eventually says and i i think the note is 1065 but i'm not sure i can put it in the show description um this this ultimate attempt at transforming becoming into being is represented by the um eternal return and that uh, there's another passage where he says you know he he compares the this too shall pass um idiom and says that for me everything's too beautiful to be fleeting and so i want just uh, should we cast all the most potent salves and wines into the sea um my belief is that everything is eternal is that the sea shall cast everything up again. And so I think there is something he wanted. It's a horrifying idea, but it's also, I really do think you have to see it like a, a, an opponent you have to face that it's like the final, it's uh, it's the final boss in dark souls. Yeah. It's like terrifying, <laughs> but once you beat it, you beat that you've, you know, you triumph. What a great feeling. So I don't know. I think they're like. Yeah, I'm just, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that's all religious. (laughs) Oh, it's absolutely religious. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that, um, yeah, it's absolutely religious. I would agree. The free will, but it's, it's, it's interesting. So yeah, then we use, it's, it is one of those categories of being, right, that we use is that we. Um, create this thing called the we draw this line around the ego consciousness and say that that thing has autonomy um, well we we to must save ourselves that. from determinism we we must think that or else we would stop being what we are and to not be what we are would to would be to violate the very value of thinking right so you can't cut off the tree you're standing on if we stand on a deception right then we must stand on it because that is the deception is actually necessary, right? Like, it, I guess what I'm saying is your ego function is like basically like I have to do stuff. Like, if you don't do stuff, you're gonna die. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to say this. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. For me, well, and that's that's where I think the free will thing is a tricky thing with Nietzsche, and and it's almost like. It's, it's part of why I do this podcast, honestly, is being able to talk about these things for like an hour more per topic. Because when I try to like sometimes sum up how I feel about something in a sentence, even now, I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. And because it is that like, I I don't feel that at all with free will that I'm compelled, right? I don't yeah, have any yeah. of that sense. And I don't have any trouble acting in the world. At the same time, I don't feel, I still 100% reject the free will idea and so i think there's like some sort of like equilibrium you reach where you realize like okay i'm this locus of action and so of course i'm going to act and i don't know but at the same time that i'm not i'm not this like a causal magical force (laughs) (laughs) i i would call the state you're in is is the absurd state it's actually correct I, i i don't know that's my opinion i think um Okay, if we go back to Ecclesiastes, one of the solutions to an inescapable evil is to run away from it, right? You just don't look at it. Like, because f- physiologically, we have fight, flight, and freeze, okay? Freeze is how you understand the problem. It's like a deer standing next to the cliff. Uh, fight, obviously, flight, obviously. So this is like the flight mechanism. 
right? Like, and that is actually, I think nihilism fundamentally is the flight mechanism. It's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Whereas the fight mechanism is like straddling the, straddling the absurd notion, right? And when you live, and like, you can't actually win, but you can win mentally, right? Like you can't win over your own death, but you right. can win mentally. And we win mentally by attaching ourselves to some aspect of eternity, whether that aspect of eternity is the notion of eternity itself, or it's our children, right? These are, one of them is physical. The other one is mental, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, and that the idea of that, hmm. I mean, you can make a, a coherent argument that essentially what Jesus, for example, is an example of is um, is beating your own death, right? Or conquering your own death. But again, like as you say, mentally and in such a way that the meme of the idea that you represent far, far, far surviving after your death. And I think that Nietzsche is in some sense trying to do the exact same thing, right? Yeah, He's yeah. trying to create his own religious meme. And he, funnily enough, you know, like he didn't get crucified. So, you know, and the whole drop, but like he had something similar, right? Because, you know, Jesus in the whole cosmic drama, Jesus lives in a world where there's like a personal God. Right. And so, of course, his suffering is at the hands of personal beings on earth um, who torture him and then kill him. Uh, Nietzsche lives in a world where God is dead. And so he gets tortured and then killed by nature. Um, and he loses his mind, which is po- probably the most valuable thing to him. Um, and so it's funny that Nietzsche even has like a, um, he's got the Nietzsche legend that sprung up around him. So it's like, yeah, at some of the, he did try to start his own religion with us book Zarathustra as well. So <laughs> that, yeah, that's yeah. what I would, that's what I maintain that I think he was actually doing that. He hoped, I think a bit absurdly as, as I think you would agree. Yeah. He wants to be the clown father. He doesn't want to be <laughs> holy. He does not want to be pronounced holy. He wants to be the clown father. Well, he writes about Zarathustra's ape. So he already knows that like there's yeah, yeah, people yeah. who are going to imitate him. Like he knows the results of what he's doing is uh, to create a bunch of clowns under the, the, the perspective we're approaching it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And, but he gives advice, right? Yeah, I, I think it's good. Okay, so... Um, uh, I have a tangent, but we'll come back. So what do you think is the purpose of thinking? Uh, I think the purpose of thinking. So, well, if I'm going to talk about the telos, um, it would be, I mean, really the purpose of thinking is so that human beings can um, cooperate and form social bonds and, um, I mean, yeah, like you could say that thinking to in the, mo- so this is, I guess I would have to ask you to find thinking because every sense 
organ has its own form of logic. Oh, okay, so to speak, okay, right? okay. That's fine. But you, you but gave a beautiful talking, answer. You gave a beautiful if, answer. <laughs> right. But if we're talking about uh, thinking, thinking, like I think it is to form social bonds. Um, okay. So would you call those social bonds wisdom? Like the ability, the thoughts you use to form those social bonds, would you call those wisdom? I mean, they ca- it can be. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> There's a lot of social. Well, so like the term religion, if we're going to talk about it, I mean, religare. The, yeah. the word literally means social bonds um, or bonds of obligation. That's, that's awesome. Basically. I did not know that. Um, so so let me let me hit you with something then. Um, so providence is comes from the word provedere, which means pro means prior to and videre means vision. So providence means foresight. So if we had religious providence, we would have foresight over, uh, you know, our social bonds. Interesting. Foresight. So, okay, it's God's foresight. It's God has already planned everything. That's the, the meaning then of how we get to the <laughs> providence. Well, well, oh, oh uh, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I, I guess, so really what prompted me wanting to talk to you about this topic in general was the notion of providence, right? Because the notion of providence is, I mean, I, I think it's at the heart of amor fati, right? And I don't think it's incidental that when Seneca is discussing providence, he gives examples. So he's trying to prove that um, we're all living in the best of all possible worlds, right? (laughs) And, And what he says is, he says, look at all these bad things. And he says, well, those bad things just made the people that's how we know great people is by them conquering bad things, right? It's almost as silly as when Pangloss says, why do we have noses? Oh, so that we can have glasses and have those glasses sit on our noses. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, the, but that's the thing. Like, no, it is very similar to Ambor Fati in the sense of saying, how, how would it, I mean, okay, maybe not, what my mind goes to there is maybe not, Amorphati specifically, but Nietzsche's thinking in general of how he approaches. I mean, it's it's basically the idea that like what you're doing there is you're you're creating a fiction, right? But the point of that is to author a story in which all of the events that have actually happened and which therefore are necessary are therefore good. And so what you're seeing is a psychological inclination to say that which is necessary is good. Then you can, we can then make fun of the absurdity, right? Because that's that same. So I, I wrote a book um, that I'm trying to get published um, that I've tried not to talk about too much, but you've read it. Um, And I said at one point, uh, art is our art is at the forefront of our war on reality. And that basically, so it is like, it's this absurd f- fight or struggle the way you, you were kind of describing yeah, yeah. it. And um, so there's a certain temperament or attitude or predisposition towards life where you can say, um, I want to call this good and be grateful and thankful for it. And so therefore 
everything that's necessary, I'm going to call it good. And then that's how you get to the place of look at the, let me find like, oh, this created this crisis. That was the backdrop for this great man. Um, I'm going to find that dot of white in the, you know, black expanse of yin, right? Yeah. That dot of yeah. Yang. Yeah. Um, because it, I demand that everything that was necessary be called good. And so that is a very, um, it's a very stoical position and it's a Nietzschean position at the same time, but it totally fits with Amorphati, I think. Have you ever played with tarot cards? Oh yeah. I, I used to be a, like an occultist. So <laughs> uh, uh, the, the other night I played for two hours with my whole family. Um, we had never done it before, but I, I knew all the cards like just because oh, you're going to hell, bro. <laughs> Um, better say five Hail Marys, bro. Yeah. Anyway, so what I was trying to say was that the arrangement of the cards is purely arbitrary, actually. But what happens is it suggests to you a meaning. Yeah, well, you don't know that. Right. And um, <laughs> and uh, it suggests to you a meaning and that this is actually what art does. It's actually the exact same process you were talking about with uh, like the Stoics looking at a terrible situation and saying like, what is the virtue that I can take out of this? Right. Yeah. Oh, well, tarot, it's, um, it's really the same as like the Yi Ching. And so it's funny because tarot cards, they are for people, you know, like people who like crystals and incense and um, things of that nature. It's for people of an aesthetic mindset. Right. Yes. For, yes. That's a nice. No, thank you. That's a no, very polite way to put it. Um, but, <laughs> but it's also, you know, or like you go, you're saying for doing it for fun. But the Yijing, I mean, we're talking several thousand years of a one of the most um, significant and largest uh, societies on Earth, um, where effectively it was very common practice for people to do the equivalent of consulting a tarot card deck. That's when you throw coins for the Yi Jing or throw sticks or however you do it, there's different ways you can get the hexagrams formed. It's really the same thing where you have, you have a series of uh, results from a completely randomized um, process. And then you generate a hexagram out of that or a series of hexagrams. And then you, um, that gives you a, it, it, it codes for different combinations code for a different outcome. And then you have a list of however many different, like 64 different outcomes that you can get. And they all have a name and they all mean something different, but it's like, that's, it's like a mirror, a psychic mirror for you to look into. It's not quite because it's like, it, it throws up a different random configuration each time, which then allows you to like bring all of your psychic baggage and like interface with it. So it's very interesting I don't know. I guess I was just trying to say it's like we see that as like a novelty or like a fun thing, but it's just worth knowing, noting like for majority of human history, people have been doing tarot cards, essentially. Let me add, um, when people do these things, they often have the feeling that someone is there or like God is there with them or whatever. They get it, they get chills down their spine. This is the freeze response that I was discussing earlier. It's frisian. And this happens when you're becoming aware of something much larger than yourself. Well, this is actually a, like very similar 
to just awareness itself. So the tarot cards or the I Ching or whatever you want to use is basically a prayer um, to randomness. It's like O Fortuna, you know, we might, we might as well sing Carvina Barana and worship mm-hmm. the wheel of fortune. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, yeah, because we're looking for um, just like shake ourselves up in a different combination of things in our life. Right. Yeah. And the more schizophrenic you are, the more meaning you see, right? So, <laughs> well, I mean, but that's also why um, you can have somebody. I mean, I have I thought about that because I my a friend who read reads tarot cards and like read my fortune. She would like get paid to do that. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then, but you think about it, it's like you go back um, into ancient times. Um, that wasn't just like a novelty thing again. That's like, that was probably the form that therapy took for a lot of people was going to the priest or priestess and having them uh, do some sort of, uh, you know, read knuckle bones or um, the Oracle. Yeah. That. uh, Yeah. So it's, I don't know. That's, the fact that that was the main form of what we would call therapy today for most of human history, I think, I don't know. It should, it should be regarded differently than, than we regard it. I think. Well, I I disagree. I think it should be funny. And I think it should be a clown show because, (laughs) because then it gets rid of all the people who want to take things too seriously. And Mm. And only I the think people- I'm actually okay. This is okay. I think so. Okay, wait. Let me ask you something. I'm going to interrupt and ask you something. Yeah, yeah. There's a fucking did plane you- going by my house. I'm sorry. I can't even hear it. Okay, uh, did good, you, good. <laughs> did you think? Uh, did you think I was going to disagree with you more on the the Christian? Yes, I was so afraid, dude. I had anxiety about it. Straight up, I almost thought about canceling the podcast because I was like, "Is he going to like?" Is this gonna like be a, like a terrible waste of everyone's time? Because there's <laughs> oh, no dude, loving. It, yeah, it would have been amazing if I really disagreed with you. It probably would have been awesome. No, because I'm not articulate with people who disagree with me. I just, I just, uh, yeah. That's fine. It's my podcast. You don't need to win. Um, but uh, what was I gonna oh, say? God, but no, don't like. Start that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I win um, everything. Urgh. <laughs> yeah i'm like uh i'm like bill o'reilly over here um that's yeah, that's like a fucking that's a boomer reference at this point man i'm like, like bill o'reilly over here yeah okay are, are you gonna touch keith, me i'm keith olbermann okay i'll be a non a non-rapist uh <laughs> talk show host um there aren't any <laughs> um dude even uh so so anyway um no, but what I was going to say is this will be our first major disagreement because I actually would disagree and I think it would be I would prefer it if everyone fucking read the horoscope and took it deathly seriously to whatever oh. the fuck our current state of spirituality is now. I'm not saying I would prefer that to anything. I'm saying I would prefer that to like the completely spiritually af- atrophied I shouldn't even say it's spiritually necessarily religiously atrophied um, a pathological society that we live in now, this like hedonistic materialism with this like pathological self-preservative instinct and the complete like 
the complete dissolution of social bonds while people pursue these like hedonistic ends and just ignore all the fucking shit around them. Like any, anything would be preferable to that. Any form of actual like religious reverence. And so, you know what, at this point I would take the horoscope. If everyone, if that like 90% of the country took the horoscope seriously, that would be a better society than the, what we live in now. Now it would be even better if they had some kind of like any kind of religion healthy or not right that's the thing so that's that's the the big problem with the whole death of god thing right is that christianity is like in nietzsche's view this religion was literally sick and dying it was an old man that died and in the same way that like if an old man whose body is riddled with cancer dies and he's flatlining um you don't go like a week later and be like but can he be brought back no, that's dead. Like that's not coming back. Um, and so it, it, that's the kind of death that Christianity died, right? In Nietzsche's view. And so then where we're at now, now we're facing nihilism, right? But I, so, and then it takes some, it take it takes somebody like me to the point of saying, God, I would even take a sickly religion over what's happening now. And then you realize, oh, we can't go back to that. And so we have to like bite through this awful phase that we're in. And um, I hope it's not something as absurd and ridiculous as Zodiac worship, but I will go to bat for it as a hypothetical and say, you're wrong, Carl. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm going to shut the door. Sorry. Fucking door open. The, uh, shut the front door. I just think your, your version of we is bigger than mine. <laughs> I am. I do not identify with society. I identify with my family and people I like, and that's it. Everybody right. else. Well, that's well, that's probably smart because we don't live in a society. No, we don't. <laughs> live in a- I'm going to come out against the popular meme that we don't live in a society. We, we, we live in a dysfunctional death machine. Like right. I'm not buying in, man. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not. I don't have to convince you. I just have to convince some people in the audience to buy in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, you know, but I uh, that is kind of like, yeah. I guess like politically, I'm not a doomer. I do look around and say, hey guys, let's get a fucking society going here. Like, and I mean that. So it's like. I'd love that. Like you go do that and then I'll come. Well, yeah, you can come. <laughs> you're, you're invited. But, but but like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go sit over here and uh worship Providentia and uh right. and Nietzsche. Well, and the only so that's the thing though. The only way that you're gonna get this is the this is the funny thing. That's part of the paradox of providence. The only way that you can get anything done is with with that idea. That's like the the Muslim uh, um, the spread of the of the Islamic religion, you know, everyone says, oh, like it's spread by the sword, and it's like uh, they say that sort of dismissively, right? And it's like, how do you inspire an incredible army to fight fanatically for you and die for you? To to the point, like during this is this is like a quote. So this is something that that Islamic extremists will say today, like we love yeah, death yeah. even more than the infidels love life. But that quote goes back. That quote goes back to like the 700s. They were saying that when they were taking over the Persian Empire. Um, 
they were saying it to the Persians. Um, we love death more than you love life. How do you get people to love death more than they love life? Right. You get it with providence, with some variation of that idea. And I don't, I don't, I sincerely don't think it's just like the afterlife. It's the idea that you're, because, you know, if it's just the idea of the, the, the afterlife, there's still no need for you to like martyr yourself. Right. It's the idea of like the, the glory that you're, you're becoming a part of by like enacting God's will. God's will is really what's central to it. Right. And so there's like a huge power to that, that basically every successful society has harnessed to get people to throw their lives away is, is really um, the truth of it to bring forth something greater than what they it can individually do. And so that, yeah, you need religion to do that. And a society that doesn't have that, well, it's not a society. That's what we're in now. <laughs> so, yeah. See, this is funny because this comes back to, I would, I, I don't like society. I don't think it's actually an adaptation necessarily. Like, Oh, well, you're just wrong about that. Uh, I, that's how we, that's how we conquered that. the world. I mean, how is that not an adaptation? Uh, uh, can we move on just because i don't sure. want to i don't want to defend myself <laughs> like i said earlier i don't actually want to disagree um okay uh what was the i did all this fucking research so i figured i better share it um providentia was a an imperial cult that was started after um uh, that asshole Octavian had a son and it was started mm. by Tiberius in honor of his father. Um, so that's where that starts. So, so Providentia is the name of a, a goddess then? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So she appears okay. on a lot of Roman coins and she's a version of Minerva. Um, I, you could argue it. And so it's kind of like worshiping Athena, right? The palace of Athene. like, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know. So there's, there's this, um, there's this worship, there's this worship of, um, I guess it's like, it's kind of like another victory, Victoria, you know, like in Germany, they have the, um, they have it everywhere. You know, the winged, the winged woman who's mm-hmm. promising victory or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the, and the Arc de Triomphe, the, the, mm-hmm. I th- believe that's where they, they have the statues of, victory yeah um fun fact i I once started a a solo well it was kind of a band called venus victrix which is the name for victorious venus oh yeah which i recently found out somebody has a blog called heavy metal classicist where he did an analysis of one of our songs which is about um uh, lucretia and like the founding dude yeah dude Um, yeah yeah, I like that came out in like 2014, basically. And yeah, yeah. the band has been defunct ever since then. Um, so then I like somebody sent that to me like two years ago. Or, uh, it, the blog post is from like two years ago. And then I found it a couple months ago. But um, yeah, um, yeah, I've never heard of Providentia, but I guess that makes well, sense. I mean, right, 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 right. Well, it's interesting though, because I wonder just because you know like the modern roman catholic church i mean was not founded like after it what's interesting to me is how the roman pagan religious institutions 
basically transformed into Christian institutions over yes. long periods of time. Yes. yes. Um, and so, which I think like some Protestants today, like, I don't know if it was a, like an original beef the Protestants have, but I think more thinkers in the last you know century or so have kind of looked at that and said, huh, like, you know, maybe that's kind of a problem, but um, the original because Luther Luther hates all things non like originalist. It's very similar to what's going on with Islam, right? What's going on with Islam with, with uh, the removal of extraneous texts um, or the uh, okay? I, I don't know what they're called. I'm sorry, forgive Hadith. me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any any kind of thing which is not like literally what is written in the in the true book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interesting i didn't realize that was like a movement for that i guess it makes sense like uh wahhabism and all that is pretty yeah hardcore. wahhabism is actually protestantism occasionally oh people, really okay so occasionally people complain they'll be like oh the, the muslims haven't gone through their reformation Yes, they are. <laughs> They're going right. through it right now. You just don't like what it looks like because it's so violent. Right. Well, let me tell you, buddy, the split between the Catholic Church and the Protestants is not a <laughs> cup of fucking tea. Like, you right. just benefit from it today. We, we stand on the shoulders of giants and we enjoy the fruits of previous generations' labors, right? We're, we're living under the trees that our elders built for us, right? Or planted for us, excuse me. Right. Like I don't know, people people forget well, it's all like of the the Protestant Reformation is, is like you know um, that's uh, John Calvin burning Doctor Servetus, like yeah, that's that's your <laughs> Protestant rest of Reformation. I mean, that's literally ISIS did that. So John, the founder of Calvinism, which Christians follow today, many Christian or you know Calvinist Christians, um, you know he was doing ISIS stuff <laughs> back in the day. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lord um, works in mysterious ways. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, I definitely think. See, it's, it's, it's. I do believe that that Islam is going to. If I had, if I were a betting man, and I had absolute knowledge of the, you know, that we could ever get absolute knowledge of the future, I would bet on. If there had to be one religion that wins, I think it's Islam. Um. I think well, they, I hope they, we have they, a, I hope we have a Butlerian jihad soon. I don't want any of these fucking AI <laughs> doing nothing. Yeah. Oh, against AI. Uh, yeah, like I think AI yeah. is already a problem. <laughs> I think it's, right, right, I right. Know. I I kind of share that 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 sentiment that um I think so I I have like a that string or that that streak for Ludd Ludditism, I guess you could say. Yeah, me too. Um, but it's not like I think all technology is bad or anything. It's just like, I wish that our society had a better, um, see, I use that word again. I wish that the state um, had a better um, means or will to, you know, so like with this, uh, this COVID pandemic, this is the first thing I'm saying that could potentially get heat to the podcast. I don't think it really, it really will, but like, suppose, I'll pose it as a hypothetical. People who love Nietzsche are edgelords. Like, right. Yeah. 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 But suppose as a hypothetical <laughs> that this pandemic came from the Wuhan um, Institute of Virology. Yeah. And yeah. suppose that it, that, that this uh, gain of function funding, um, you know, this, this research that we're funding worldwide, 
to uh, take viruses and soup them up and make them into super viruses um, so that we can then make vaccines for them in case they ever, anything like that ever happens, which seems to me to be a very, a very strange uh, uh, logical syllogism. I'll put it like that. But um, so we're doing all this dangerous research and let's say hypothetically that it did lead to this whole COVID pandemic. Um, that's like a situation where I, I feel like in a healthy functional society, you would come in and say, you have to stop doing that now. And like, I, I don't know why we're not other than, well, I mean, I do know why we're not, um, you know, that we have a lot of bureaucracy and that creates that situation and there's really no way to stop it. But, um, AI is one of those things, I guess that was like a roundabout way of saying it. Like, I don't know if we could like clamp down on all AI. I'm not like anti-technology, but I mean, we should just look at that. Like, I don't know. We should, we should, the, the issue is like when you have like an arms race with AI, we can't really pull back. So I, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to fight our jihad, Carl. Because, oh, you know. Oh, I, I, I was talking about other people doing it. <laughs> right. I, I, I am a shit piece of decadent garbage. Yeah. Right. Well, we're the philosopher kings who come up with the ideas no, and then other people no, oh my carry God. them out. See, you know what this has to do with? Our disagreement earlier is because I have a negative internal image and you do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's probably uh, <laughs> this is that's like, probably true. Yeah. So like good luck arguing with my negative internal image, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> that's no man, you should be a philosopher king. I think you should do it. <laughs> uh, hey, man, uh, I'll give you uh, something Napoleon said. Uh, I'm the instrument of providence. She will use me as long as I accomplish her designs. Then she will break me like a glass. Mm. Man, that's that's pretty beautiful. So George Washington. Where, where did he also, say that? I think it's in his memoirs or maybe it was earlier in his life. I'm not sure. I'm so I'm sorry. I went quote farming. For prov- people who actually talk about providence. Um, let me give you one from uh, George Washington. Uh, I have only been an instrument in the hands of providence. So, um, but anyway, so Napoleon, uh, maybe this is advice for people who want to be virtuous, who want to imitate Moses and Theseus and Cyrus, who, who want to be virtuous, right? I mean, besides don't become a clown. Um, it's that if you look at napoleon's life and nietzsche nietzsche admired napoleon a great deal and um it's really interesting to see when power power is like a glove power hmm, napoleon is the glove on power i actually don't think napoleon could do anything other than that which he did because the things he did were necessary right there are these proletariat energies that are driving his conquest. And once those proletariat energies run out, he loses, he ends up losing everything, right? And uh, I think that's kind of a lesson. It's riding a wave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he knows this. I mean, this is where this quote comes from. I mean, it must. Uh, He's aware that um, he's just part of this historical force, right? And yeah, I think it's really beautiful. So like ride the waves you can, I guess, you know, 
um, be, you know, if something is fruitful and it multiplies, great, you know, power should go where power grows. You know, that's the advice that, like, that's what Providentia would want you to do, you know, if she was going to whisper in your ear. Um so yeah. what can we what can we do to to I I'm 100 I love all that. What can we do to found some sort of cult to Providentia to exist in modern times? <laughs> See salt salts. I said if I don't know, man. I don't I don't know. I well, said well, but serious. Okay, well, 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 hold on. Play. Okay, come come along with me on this. If you were going to create a new religion. How would you do that in 2022? I wouldn't. Right. But I'm not I know getting you into wouldn't. Salt, salt. <laughs> I regard this boat. This is like you're asking me to get in the boat on the river sticks. I'm not getting in this fucking <laughs> boat, man. That boat does not lead to where. So I guess let me give my answer. And this is the answer I give to anyone who's a nationalist. It's that uh, my concerns are very circumscribed. Like, I think that all of the ills of modernity are due to the degradation of tribal bonds, that it was necessary for this to happen, and that it's going to get worse, but that, like, if you want to live a happy life, you should live according to your nature. And your nature is not compatible with society. So, okay, so there's this eternal conflict between man's nature and society, since society is an artificial construct and man's nature is relatively not, right? And the cultivators, which Nietzsche goes after, they want to cultivate man and make him different from that which he is so that he is compatible with society. When actually, if you were constructing society, you would ask, what is in man's nature and how do I make society compatible with his nature? So like, how do you fix Facebook, right? Well, Facebook got fucked up when they stopped letting you interact only with a very small community. It's because they broke Dunbar, Dunbar's number, okay? You started having friends of friends commenting on your shit and then some guy you don't know is arguing with some other guy you don't know about, right. about, about religion on a public feed that you have to your grandma. And then right. everyone realized in that moment that Facebook is garbage, right? So, well, I think it did so more yeah, damage it, than that. They, they, I think the conclusion was all of us are gar- are garbage. It showed us a garbage side of humanity. But anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, but that's but we're not garbage. We're 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 not garbage when we have cellular groups that right. have tribal bonds. Where I mean, I'm obviously advocating for communitarianism or like whatever you want to call this stupid shit. And, communism yeah communism actual communism not like family communism. communism yeah but it, <laughs> yeah so i think any kind of technology which i mean eventually we will be selected on such that we are appropriate to society but i it, i don't care right like yeah, I don't know. Sorry, you go on. You can respond to all my stupid garbage. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I somehow got you to actually push back on the society point, which is good because that, that no, that makes a lot more sense to me of what you're saying. That society is artificial in terms of it surpasses Dunbar's number. But if we look at why that is, societies arise because of the power that um, societies have. 
right? That oh yeah, yeah, greater and greater aggregations of people are were a necessary eventuality. Um, as what would you say? I mean, it's really a consequence of tribal warfare, right? And so what what tribal warfare happens, which is always going to happen when due to competition for resources and genetic competition and all these things. And then what happens? You start creating these tribal confederations, both so you can be protected from the outside, but more importantly, um, you know, uh, it lessens your chance of like getting, you know, murked by somebody just over like, uh, you know, these feuding feuding that could happen or conflict or all these things. Let me give you an example. You're Scotland and I'm England. And we're going to raid each other across this mile border and you're going to steal my cows and I'm going to come steal your cows. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's like, if you're when, but when it's like five or six tribes doing that, it's like way better to have a confederation. But then as that process keeps going and going and going and going, then you get Ashurbanipal and Sargon of Akkad and, um, you know, all of these empires arising and, um, I don't think that those empires actually were against human nature, um, even though human nature was radically reshaped by it, um, because they those were intensely and rigidly hierarchical. And it seems like that's how human beings tend to organize um, when they aggregate into these giant groups. I think well, I think maybe sorry, let me clarify. Ag- I'm not at war with society. I'm just trying to be a happy red blood cell. I'm not competing with other people trying to be brain cells. Okay. I'm not interested in this competition. I think competition is for losers. Um, I think that the way you go is by not competing. Like I truly believe that everyone who engages in a Machiavellian shit, shit show um, is going to be a loser. Mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, you realize, okay, okay, hold on. There's something else I was going to say. I don't want to lose, but um, before I get to that, I mean, those are all of Seneca's great people. Um, And so, and, and just from the perspective of like what their lives are like, it's probably more thrilling than the life you or I would lead. Right. Being, being some sort of Machiavellian um, ambitious person in yeah, yeah. century Florence. I don't know. So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to knock it, but what, what I was going to say is, so you have these, okay. So prior to the rise of these large um, multi-state empires, right. Where you far exceed Dunbar's number, which has been going on for about 4,000 years. Um, although now we're like, well, we're orders of magnitude above the scale of societies that existed then. But even then, way went over Dunbar's number. Um, the way that human beings organized themselves prior to that was in these tribal um, extended kin group communities, which tended to be largely, so this is, I wouldn't say egalitarian because there were still roles based on a lot of things having to do with family, right? But there wasn't like the kind, like, the kind of economic inequality that we just accept as a matter of course today isn't even like conceivable in these types of societies. Um, and it, politically, a lot of decisions are made jointly. And it's where people get the idea of like primitive communism, right? That is true that that happened. The thing is, the only way to functionally organize 
thousands upon thousands or millions of people is with these hierarchical structures. And so human beings organize themselves in a completely different way. But I would just put the case to you that it's not unnatural. It's the exact same way that there's grasshoppers and there's locusts. They're the exact same insect. But um, when grasshoppers start swarming, it's like they they feel like the touch of another grasshopper against their like uh, nerves on their legs more than a certain number of times per minute. It starts triggering them to start swarming. And that's what human beings are. We're swarming, right? So, and like physiologically, locusts are different from grasshoppers and their behavior socially is totally different, right? Um, and so our behavior now is totally different in the swarm of human beings. It's really, we're not a herd like Nietzsche says. Um, and we're not like, so in our natural, he calls us a herd and then he imagines being like a fucking beast of prey as a, as a higher man. None of that's right. Um, as far as Nietzsche's metaphors go, what it really is, is that on the smaller level, human beings are pack animals. And on the larger level, we swarm. <laughs> and I think that that's basically the nature of it. Um, so we're in the swarm and I understand looking at the swarm and being like, oh, that sucks. Um, but I think, I don't know. I'm not going to make an argument for, I, I just, for the swarm, I just gave a very negative view, but I think it's one, it's like, it is natural, right? It's not an, an unnatural thing. Um, even though we only have 4,000 years of history of us doing it, I think the fact that it happened just shows, well, that, I guess that's how human beings behave in large groups. I'm reminded of the quote at the end of um, The Prince. Um, he uses, okay, the first line is virtu contro al furore, or I don't know how to say it correctly. But uh, one way of translating that is furore is fury. And the, the translation usually is something like virtue will take up arms against the barbarian. But another way to translate that is to say virtue, virtue will take up arms against the rabble or not the rabble that's not the right word but the fury of the mob right it's it's like the swarm right so um i guess i'm reminded that we have a disagreement i agree with nietzsche uh that when we are talking about individuals who consciously have enough power to uh engage rationally with their own natures then they're going to know that the irrationality of the herd is like a death machine, I guess. So, yeah, no, sure. I agree with that. Yeah. So, I, I, and I'm not saying, I'm not disagreeing. Okay. There's a statement that I agree with that you should be on the side of power, right? Like I agree historically society is that which creates technology, which is enabled by having slaves and if you are on some level anti-society, then you are anti-power and that you're going to lose, right? But you have to acknowledge that the only way that there are intellectuals is that there are slaves. And this is where everyone gets upset reading Nietzsche because he's saying that some people are fit for slavery. Well, he's agreeing with this civilizational occurrence that there has to be division of labor and that necessarily some people will be made objects, right? And even in the modern day, I think people too often think of themselves not as slaves, 
right? Like I think of myself as a slave on some level because I have to work for a living, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not part of the, I'm not even part of the professional managerial class, right? Like right, right, right. me being a carpenter, like carpenters do not make enough money for what they do. <laughs> There's like not even fucking clothes and they're like dead by the age of 50 right like with how their bodies are destroyed so um yeah i guess so my response to the world is um yeah i guess so like you see the intellect you you see the people in power as receptive to intellect and i agree that some people in, in power are receptive to intellect but I think other people are going to make that case. I don't need to make that case, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I well, I I think they are receptive to. Well, okay. I don't I, I don't want to necessarily derail because we've been going for a while already, like into but talking about like cyclical history and stuff like that. Hey, hey, hey! I'm I want to derail us. I want to. I'm not us. necessarily convinced. Let me say of... something. Let me say something. Kissinger did nothing wrong. <laughs> um. It, Kissinger's crime was was a weakness, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay, let's get back on point. Oh God. Um, yeah, uh, but okay. So, but to everything you said, okay. So that thing is like you're 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 correct of like that it is Nietzsche's view. Um, that well, so he's that he's speaking to the free spirit, which is contrasted with the bound spirit in human all to human, which is where he introduces the whole concept is in the context of opposing the free spirit to basically the person who is in the, you know, the masses, the herd. Um, he elaborates a lot more in the herd and like the gay science in that era, but I think, yeah, we're on the same page about in terms of his valuation of the rarest specimens of the species of being of, of real value, the person that rides the wave, right. That we've been talking about, but on the other hand, something else that Nietzsche is concerned with ever since he starts writing is culture. It's the problem of culture. What is culture? I mean, like really actually, what would you, what would you give as a definition of what culture is? This is another one of those fucking boats, man. It's like you're, you're putting me on the river sticks. And asking- I'm just asking a definition <laughs> of a concept. Like, I mean, I think so- it's, I, I, I know that I'm going to get, hold on. I know that I'm going to get a definition and that you're going to pull out of it some Socratic shit. And I don't even want to look at it. So <laughs> I'll get fine. I'll give you a definition. Um, Culture is our set of inherited ideas and beliefs which are not questioned, right? They are things that we have. Like, for example, I believe that Nietzsche's concept of the eternal return is a function of the cultural upbringing he lived in. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Okay. And I think you made a, a good case for that. Um, but okay, so culture, working off that definition, um, inherited beliefs that are not questioned. So I think the key thing to me is inherited. Um, That culture is not, it's not something that is individual that you discover yourself. Um, It's part of the way I would define culture is that it is the basis. It's the conceptual basis for the collective net of consciousness 
that through which your community perceives the world. Um, and so I think that, so when Nietzsche is very concerned with the problem of culture, right, that his whole, all the untimely reflections essays, and the reason why he's untimely is he's looking around at the German culture and saying, oh my God, what, what will the next generations that we raise be like? We are ruining people. That he basically thinks that culture is this like real thing, which people just dismiss these days. So have you noticed that on the left, you, you don't poison your brain with as much political stuff as I do, but on the left, one of the things they'll say about a lot of issues dismissively is that's just culture war nonsense. Um, and it's because they've basically realized <laughs> that they, they've realized they're losing every cultural argument. And so they've now pivoted to an economic left position, you know, a la Bernie Sanders, and a lot of the most popular left-wing commentators tend to focus on that. Um, then, then they have to constantly, their whole career is explaining why none of the candidates that they vote for ever do anything in that direction, right? Um, but all that aside, people are really dismissive about culture as like a real force. Uh, and a lot of people also classify Nietzsche as an individualist. When I read Nietzsche, what I see is that he is completely convinced that culture is a real and important force that actually affects material reality. Um, like he's not the, he would reject the Marxist dialectical materialism issue. But what that means is that like that, <laughs> that's a, that means that the beliefs that other people hold are important to you if you care about culture, right? Um, and so, I don't know, it's it's an interesting, I don't know exactly, I haven't worked that out exactly myself of what to do with that because I think that's part of what Nietzsche's problem is because he doesn't know, he doesn't believe that you can necessarily like win hearts and minds with reason or anything like that. No, um, no, you can't. You, you know how you win hearts and minds? With wisdom. You know with, what wisdom right. is? You know what wisdom is? Wisdom lives where there is no hope. Wisdom is is providentia. Wisdom is useful knowledge that is used to advance the strength or the will to power of others. That's why when you make an argument to someone, you have to use pathos. You have to argue to their will to power. You cannot argue to something in them which does not desire the furtherance of that person, right? That's a... Uh... Man, that's a very good insight, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, of like when I argue with people, that is a concern. It's like, how do I phrase this in a way that they will care about? Yeah, it's pathos. Um, it's, you know, it's the degradation of our education that we don't teach people charisma as a positive thing. Charisma is not evil. Charisma is identifying the needs of others and being receptive to their needs. It's actually empathy. Like, you cannot be charismatic without being empathetic. That's true empathy. Like, understanding what someone else fucking needs you know like mm. i get upset yeah. about this because people like to say they're empathetic when they're anything but they're just they're monsters i i agree 100 percent. well that's and that's the thing we might not uh, agree on but that's where i'm like i feel like we can get to a place where i don't well, know the, there's the more real empathy in the world based on bonds that are not that are not just abstract ideas and ideological drivel and not just like naked 
power struggle. I think let me give you my fund. Let me give you my fundamental argument. My fundamental argument is about altruism. Altruism is biologically evolved to focus on your kin group. And when what religion does is it displaces the altruistic locus onto group selection rather than the, the tribe, right? Now, what happens even further is you're displacing your altruism onto an idea. Like liberals have less children than conservatives, but liberals are constantly converting conservatives. They, we've known this since the 70s. This isn't, this isn't uh, partisan knowledge. Everybody knows this. So what, what happens, this is the process under which human beings are subjected. So when you say culture, what I think to myself is this set of ideas that's out there that's constantly converting people to its will, right? Like you could call it reason. Like if we had a temple of reason, this is how it would be built, right? And I think that that's fine. Okay, great. Sure, the temple of reason shouldn't be filled with evil people, but you know what? It fucking is. Okay, and right. yeah, and part of part of becoming a man or an individual, or like a free thinker, is going to the temple and seeing all the sinners, right? And realizing, oh, the temple is not the temple has been destroyed, right? And I think this is a continual process. I actually think that this is how it's always been and it always will be. And that you build a temple in your home, you build a temple with the people you love, you build a temple with the people who've suffered just like you have, because it's easier to talk to them, right? Because you have shared suffering. Yeah. And that that's given your nature and given the nature of things that that's all we can do. Yeah. Okay. But I, I'm going to say no, because the entire um, gift of providence is the gift of daring to say, uh, I'm going to be absurd and I'm going to try and rebuild the temple. Right. Because why the fuck wouldn't you? And that's, that's, that's what I get out of it. What I get out of it is not this idea that like, Oh, it's pointless. I I feel like that is giving into the determinist um, evil. No, 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 like, no, no. If, I think, if, if, I think pro- missing... if Providence, if Providence doesn't inspire you to rebuild the temple, I don't understand what fun. I don't think you're interpreting Providence right. No, no, no. I, I said, I said, rebuild the temple okay. in your home, in the right, people you know not... and love. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying okay. rebuild the well, temple I got you. in the public square. I'm saying that the temple is in every single human being. Right. Just it's Christ says this. Right. He says the temple is in you. It, right, it comes through me. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I'm a Lutheran. I'm advocating for Lutheranism. (laughs) You're the, you're the Catholic. Um, You're trying to control the public square, right? (laughs) Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm trying to personally control it. What I'm saying is that I, um, I think that the value as I see it, that has been created, um, how do I, how would I put it? The value of mankind was not created um, when we were living just on the basis of, you know, the tribe or just caring about what goes on in our own home, like the productions of culture and all these great people that we've talked about um, emerged out of, I don't know, out of, I think a, a much 
something something bigger than that. I'm kind of losing. I might need to. We know I need to stop soon because I'm kind of like actually losing my ability to string thoughts together. But I don't know. I I guess I'm just sort of saying I I feel that. Let me make your argument for you. Okay. Okay. Let me say that we are all living in a decadent period of history and that there are two ways to reproduce. You can reproduce biologically. You can reproduce ideologically. And right now we live in a very fruitful ideological time. We're actually living in a period which is comparable to the Greeks. And right now, because we live in a time of decadence, we should embrace our decadence. We should say, ah, yes, I will reproduce ideologically. I will share my gifts to the world and I will be mimetic, right? Well, sure, that's one thing, but I'm even looking at it from the angle of, um, I don't know. I think you can, so this is where I have like maybe a weird position. I'm going to invoke Thomas Sowell, (laughs) who says, the fundamental temperamental difference between liberals and conservatives or the left wing and the right wing is that the left wing are utopians, but the right wing are, I forget. Okay. He says that the left takes a utopian view of the government or of human governance of society and that the right wing takes what he calls, I believe a limited view. You might be able to correct me on this if you know what I'm talking about. I, I, I know but, a little bit of soul, but I don't know that. It, it's basically the idea that fundamentally, even though there's going to be exceptions and not everyone believes the same thing, blah, 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 blah. In general, the left wing tends to believe that there are like unbounded possibilities for mankind and for progress, right? That through reason and hard work and coming together and all of these things, we can achieve. I mean, that's like the dream of communism. So Yeah. yeah. Okay. Hold um, on. I'm a progressive insofar as I believe is the, in the progressive view of history. Like I do believe but, in that, but so, but then the conservative, more conservative orientation is basically a limited view that where you say like, well, there's certain things about human nature that's going to make that never actually come to pass, or it will never actually last. Um, human beings will always like eventually undermine the system, or um, you know, it'll become corrupt, it'll become decadent, blah 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 blah, and so that's like more of the cyclical view of history. But either way, you don't even have to hold to a certain view of history. That wasn't Sowell's point. His point was, what do you think the government actually can do? Do you think it can totally reshape all of human nature and anything is possible? Or do you think certain things aren't possible because human nature, sociological factors or forces or whatever? My whole point in bringing this up is I feel like I sit in the middle of those or almost trying to synthesize both of those positions into a form of like, I don't know, like acknowledging that you will never have like an ultimate like state, you'll never have the ultimate utopia that lasts. But if, if you're not willing to just say, well, I'm, I want to still construct that paradise anyway. Um, like, I just don't understand it. Like why you would like, if you would, I mean, I, okay. I understand why, Functionally, there's nothing anyone can do about anything politically for most of most fucking things. But like, like, we'll just say with the things that you can affect, like a local election, if you have like the ability to make things just like a little bit better and then you don't do it because you're like, well, I have human nature or something that to me just doesn't make any fucking sense. Like you should try to make things better. <laughs> you should no, no, try I agree. to I agree. realize I your vision. I agree. Um, okay, cool. Okay. So uh, let me, you, you will fail, but like in the, yeah, that's it okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care about failure. The, 
I guess let me, you, you're, you say you're standing in the middle and let me have a way of phrasing that really briefly. Um, did we get where we were by acting in our nature or did we get where we are or where we are, where we are by acting against our nature? Now, people like to, I think that's a different way of stating your liberal conservative thing. And I agree that that's actually not the question. The question is, what is the fundamental drive of man? And what, how is our nature adjusting to some fundamental force over time? And that fundamental force is actually the will to power. That's the clarity you get from the middle path. And society will adjust to power. It will continually just however power, it's like, wow, this is, this is coming back to uh, Machiavelli's discussion of fortune. Fortune is like a flood. And how you deal with fortune is in how you prepare for the flood, right? You, you can either do nothing or you can build dikes, right? You can build irrigation canals, right? And if you build irrigation canals, you'll become rich, right? Because you're, you're, you'll have a floodplain, right? This is, and this is the Chinese origin myth too. They have, they have the flood myth. Anyway, they talk, the solution to the flood myth is the creation of dikes. Anyway, whatever. So yeah, and that's the middle path. You're recognizing this is how the will to power manifests in society, and this is where it is a dam and the dam breaks and everyone drowns. And this is where the dam is irrigated correctly, right? So I think when, I don't think we actually disagree as much as you might think, because I think if we spoke about particular issues and whether or not you it, the issues are necessary or open to change, I think um, we would probably agree about how they're open to change unless we had some other Unless I'm missing something, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I I just I guess I'm more like just was questioning your at what it seems to be more of an attitude than a like necessarily a position that basically that being being committed to any sort of broader social project beyond your family um, isn't worth it, or I guess just okay. The way you phrased it makes a lot more sense, right? That you have the way of biologically reproducing yourself or you can do it mimetically or ideologically. And so you're basically saying I've committed to that second one. So I don't, I'm not playing that first game at all. Um, which I think is wise to some extent. Um, but it's a kind of a, what would you say? It's not a prisoner's dilemma. It's, it's like a tragedy of the commons, right? It's like, if everyone does that, we just see the social <laughs> bonds continue to dissipate. Yes, and yes, so, you have and, to have and, a balance. And actually, and actually, I disagree with your, your, your account of altruism and where it comes from, because I really do think that it actually comes from that sort of game theoretic um, intuition in mankind to, to play by a certain set of rules. Because like, I think that there is like a... I think it's like, I would almost struggle to put it into words, but a sort of intuitive leap that mankind makes, or maybe just something that we axiomatically understand about rules and the nature of like social, I don't want to say a social contract because I don't like social contract theory and I don't agree with it, but like just this un, a mutual understanding, like Eric Gans, the anthropologist had like that interesting idea that he thought the first act of like human linguistic communication was what he called the act of abortive appropriation 
And so what that is, is he's saying like over the long eons of human beings in a pack getting together to kill a large animal and then split up the kill for themselves. Eventually you would have a situation as the social um, life of humans developed and we became more socialized animals that uh, somebody would go to like reach to just grab their take of the kill first and then stop and pull their hand back. And then in that moment, everyone realizes like, it's like the recognition of a sort of mutual, like that we have to have some sort of mutual distribution of like the product that we've all created together. Right. It can't just be, we all grab in a free for all. And that that's like sort of the basis of human beings becoming social. And if that's the case, which I'm not necessarily convinced it is, I think you could say like sort of the premise of our consciousness is learning how to learning how to understand the ways in which we can work together to create better outcomes. That's like the main advantage that it gives us. I, <laughs> and so I think I agree. And, I agree. And so I think like there is a I forget where I was going with that in relation to our broader conversation, but oh, like on, as we got into like larger and larger scale and you get to like society-wide problems, right? I think there's like, there is a certain extent to which it doesn't make sense for any one of us to say like, I'm going to go try and change the whole direction of society because of this, that, or X, Y, or Z issue, right? But if you do get into a situation that you're in, like, let's say for the sake of argument that our society is on the decline, like not, not everyone can just like ignore that. And we have to like fucking galvanize to save it. I feel like that's just like a sort of a social rule, I guess, is what I'm invoking. I don't know. <coughs> I don't know if I even yeah. believe that I'm, I'm kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of spitballing here because I'm, I'm, I, you, you're making me think about new like territory. So I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I'm exaggerating my position just a little bit too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, I think. Uh, did you have anything more on Providence that you wanted to, to get out, or any like final thoughts? Oh, can I give a little artistic thing that I've made? Sure. Okay. A dragon spoke to a man on a hill. Calamity meets you at the end of your days. Every life carries a limit where it breaks before the generative principle of the universe. Torn apart and reassembled, made anew in your cycle of birth and death. The hubris, the hubris of your flesh will lose its essence. Providence will discard you as she does all men in favor of what gave them birth, the world. Fortuna holds you only for a while, your life turning along her wheel of fate. Providence raises your fasces and it crumbles in her hands. The rod of your authority is dust. The man spoke back. Providence, <clears throat> Providence need not give me a wide berth. I am no coward. It is by good fortune that I meet ill ends for those ill ends mark my overcomings. Without fortune's wheel, I'd have no triumph. Something everlasting could not be good. My joys and pains attenuate, but my victories echo through me. The chamber of my soul is built for a deep sound, something that shakes loose your dust. I like the image of, uh, I don't know, the, the answer to, that was an answer to um, 
who to Seneca. So yeah, I, I am using some Seneca there. I, I, I'm yeah. totally guilty of plagiarism. So no, uh, no, no, we, no. That's that's called being cultured. <laughs> I don't know, but um, like if I was to put that somewhere, there would actually be a citation because I do believe in citations. But yeah, no, fuck that. I'm against oh, okay. citations in poetry. No, like you can totally make a callback. Well, because it's not the same thing, right? You're saying I'm like, don't you don't need to give me a, the the meaning isn't clear unless somebody gets the illusion. So I think it's cool. I'm I got I understood everything you said, which I don't know if I would have um, at the beginning. So that's cool. Maybe ooh, maybe I'll clip that out and have you just read that at the beginning. <laughs> no, the no clippings. Okay. <laughs> unless 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 you want to put fart sounds somewhere you you could put fart Um, sounds like whenever i whenever you say whenever i say something you disagree with you could actually like do some awful noise (laughs) 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 oh man oh okay yeah it'll be a fun episode no i'm not gonna do anything like that well carl uh this has been uh awesome I feel like we got into, I have no idea how long this is. I feel like we got off into crazy territory there. La, la, or like man. really deep. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like the conversation got better as it went on. So hopefully, um, you know, people listen to the whole thing because I think, all I don't know. I'm going to need to like listen to this back because I don't think I fully processed everything we talked about. Um, but thank well, you the, for making me think. You're welcome. The clown father blesses you. Okay, Hong Kong. Um, okay, um, solidarity. All, <laughs> all right, solidarity uh, forever. And you don't have any. You don't have any plugs, do you? You you have no. No. You have I anything? Think, no, no solidarity. That's a good plug. Eh? Okay. Yeah. Why not? Already. Um, a. You're basically like a Southern Canadian up there. <laughs> Whatever. Um, okay. Don't dox me, bro. Uh, <laughs> uh, no no I, wait, that, I, I, that, that a doxed you that, that doesn't dox i've already doxed myself my name is carl right. lord i live in minnesota yeah like, oh well there you go okay yeah um all right broadcasting live from sunny austin texas this is uh keegan um signing off if you enjoyed the nietzsche podcast or found it helpful you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.